Revelation chapter three, verses one through six. Tonight we're going over the dead church, the dead church. Can you guys say dead church? You guys are dead. So you are the dead church. And we're going to talk about how you all have failed. I'm just kidding. Okay. Subdued laughs. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this ministry. Lord, this church has been transformational for me. This is the place where I met you. This is the place where my friends met you. This is the place where I felt called to ministry. This is the place where I saw many other people get called into their mission. And we pray, Lord, that you call many more so that we would redeem the time. The days are evil. Give us instructions on what we are to do and how we are to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Have any of you ever been to a restaurant that you, you got pulled in because of their Instagram feed? You saw what they're offering, filet mignon, or maybe it's ice cream. That's always, that always gets me. Um, but then you step into the establishment, you got your expectations really high, and then you taste it, and it's really not good at all. Anyone ever been in a restaurant like that? I hate that. Can't stand that. It's deceptive. They should be fired, all of them. Um, I remember, so... Years ago, there used to be a place which was open, now they're closed, in El Paso, Texas, where I go rock climbing. I've been there a couple times now. Um, so I know the area pretty well. If anyone's ever from there, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, but it was called Chubby's Chillin' and Grillin'. And we were really hungry, me, me and my friends, so we went into this establishment expecting to get some good grillin', whatever it was. And we walked inside, it was basically a bar, and they didn't have any food. So... We were like looking at the bartender and we're like, hey, so um, what do you guys have on the menu? And like, menu? We don't have a menu. So what's the grilling part? It's chilling and grilling. There's no, there's no grilling. So I was obviously deceived at this establishment, right? So you all have an expectation and then you step into the place and it's obviously not as it appears. And the fact is that can be true of churches as well. Churches can be known for things as they appear, especially on social media, but you step into the place and it is very, very different than what you had in your mind. And wouldn't that be a tragedy if the church promotes certain things or says certain things, has certain slogans, but then when you come into the place, it's very different than what we say. If a church says, come as you are, and then you step in and you feel like everybody is judging you, wouldn't that be tragic? If a church says, welcome home, but it doesn't feel like home at all. It feels like somebody else's house and you stepped in and you're intruding. 
You ever have that happen? You step in, you're just like, especially when you're younger and you're sleeping over and then you wake up and it's like, you don't know any, this is the first time you've ever slept over this person's house. You wake up before everybody else and you're just lying awake for hours and you're just terrified. You don't know what you're going to do. And you step into the church and you don't feel at home. Or this church says, we are all about seeking the lost, but they haven't done one iota bit of evangelism. Well, Jesus says, I know your works in verse one. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. You are known for being alive. You appear to be alive. Everything looks good on the outside, but I know that your works are actually dead. So we need to evaluate, are our works dead? Now, this is very important because you have to ask yourself, how can a dead church produce life in other people? If we are a church that looks like everything's going great on the outside, but we're dead inside, we shouldn't be surprised that there's never any real change in anybody's life ever because we ourselves are not filled with the spirit of God. Now, I feel like I've been going through some intense spiritual warfare recently. If you're not a believer in Jesus, um, basically spiritual warfare is we believe that there, are, there is a God and he is spirit and he has angels and there are also bad angels. There are evil spirits. And some people who don't believe in God still believe in that stuff too. And so what we're saying is, there is an enemy of God, Satan, and he has his angels, and they spend their time plotting and thinking of how to mess up those that follow Jesus, how to keep them distracted, occupied in things that really don't matter. So spiritual warfare doesn't mean that you see a demon in your room or that you get like chills at night or that a plate falls on the floor mysteriously. Spiritual warfare can simply be you're just like so depressed one day and you have no idea why there's no explanation. I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about there are some days you just feel like everything is wrong. There are some days that you're just angry at the world and you have no idea why. I'm not saying it's all Satan's fault either, but there are just sometimes there are things that are inexplicable and random, but the reason why it happens is to distract you from the greater purpose that God has. Satan doesn't waste his time on people that are ineffective for the kingdom of God. He's strategic. So if you're going through spiritual warfare, it's very possible that you are doing something right. But a dead church is ineffective. Therefore, there is no controversy. There's nothing to be said about that church. It's just dead. So let me define further. What is a dead church? Well, this church at Sardis was on a citadel, just so you know. Um, so if you look at pictures of Sardis, there are some remains and you could see this great mountain that goes up and there's a city that sits on this mountain. And this city actually was besieged twice, one by King Cyrus and one by Antiochus III. And both times in history, these people that lived in the city believed that they had this impenetrable fortress because of the fact that they were sitting on this high mountain and they had high walls. Um, so they really didn't spend a lot of time with armed guards guarding the fortress. But the first siege happened when a Persian soldier was just peeking and, and watching the wall and saw another soldier that was there uh, from Sardis who dropped his helmet down 
down the cliff and found a secret pathway. And then he just led all of his troops up that secret pathway and took over the city. And that actually happened twice. You, you would think that they would learn their lesson, but they didn't. So Sardis was known for a couple different things, those sieges for one. Number two, this is where modern money may have originated. And it's also known for a giant cemetery. So Sardis was known for a couple things, but it was not known for being active in their faith for the Lord Jesus. David Garland, who's a commentator from Baylor University, says, how does a church die? Why does Christ use this expression for Sardis, even though the churches in Thyatira and Laodicea had serious problems? Sardis had had, had significant fame as a royal city, but now it was nothing. The citizens were living off past fame. Apparently the same spirit had affected the church. Their loyalty and service to Christ was in the past. Now they were nothing. It may be that they, they had so made peace with the surrounding society that the offense of the cross had ceased and they were no longer in jeopardy of life or vulnerable to suffering. See, this church is not the persecuted church, not the suffering church. This church is not the church of false doctrine or sexual immorality. It just may be that they didn't really do anything. And so they became ineffective. They had their past fame. They had at one point life and they just always looked to the past to define them. And so the absence of their spiritual activity was an evidence of absence of the Holy Spirit altogether. Just as a body is dead without its spirit, so this church was dead without the Holy Spirit. So verse two, Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen the things which, re which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God. So the evaluation is happening. You have a little bit of strength left, right? You have a little thing, you have some things that are alive, the whole thing's not shot, but currently your works are not perfect before God in the evaluation. Now there's a difference between dead according to man and dead according to God. People may judge a church as dead through human standards. That would be basically a person looking at a church and going, oh, this church is dead because of their music style. That guy is so boring. Can't stand that worship team. Or maybe a lack of ministries. Like how come there's no this minister, that minister, youth minister, you're looking at a church and evaluating it based on how many ministries and programs they have. Or a lack of attendance. Maybe you stepped here tonight and I'm like, whoa, I really thought there'd be more people. This church must be dead. See, we look at very superficial things on the outside that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, have nothing to do with the Lord. Nowhere in the Bible do you see it say like, if you have few people attend your church service, you're probably doing something wrong. Nowhere in the Bible do you see it say, make sure that you do as many programs as possible in your church. And the church doesn't, I mean, the Bible says nothing about the style of worship. You can have the most boring church and it could still be filled with the spirit of God. So what does a dead church look like according to God? Well, many of you may know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were brothers, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God. Cain 
offered an offering of fruit and Abel, an offering of the firstborn of his flock and it's fat, the Bible says, the best stuff. So Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. Now, is that because God is not a vegetarian and he loves meat? No. The answer is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So we see the answer is, one was offered in faith and one was not. One was, you know, I have to give an offering to God. What do I give him? I guess I'll give him what, okay. I got some fruit here. I got some strawberries. Yeah, okay, here we go. I got some pocket change laying on the altar. And the other one was, let me take the best of what I have and give it to God first. But think about this. Cain and Abel were first, the first uh, men born on earth, born into sin. Meaning that Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God at some point. And so that sets the, the standard high, right? Like Abel's offering a sacrifice to God. And that's the first sacrifice ever recorded in the Bible where God's saying, hey, I want something from you. So Abel goes, all right, what do I give God? How in the world do I give God something that's gonna make him happy? Like imagine God who owns everything, created everything says, hey, um, just do the best you got and just give me something, right? Abel offered his in faith and Cain did not. Cain said, it doesn't matter what I give God, he'll never be happy. And he got angry. And Abel says, well, I know what I have will never really be good enough. But by faith, I believe that one day there will be a perfect sacrifice. Someone will offer himself and it will satisfy the wrath of God. It will bring peace between God and man. And that's Jesus Christ. Abel offered his sacrifice in faith. Now, if my kids come up to me, like Cruz loves making music right now, very proud. And as he's working on the computer, he's working, working on Fruity Loop Studio, He's making his little beats, his hip hop beats. He comes up to me. If he shows them to me, do I evaluate it according to the standards of the world? And go like, oh man, you got these things off. I mean, that's not even a key. Like, really? I know you're eight years old, but come on. I will never put this on Spotify. Anything he makes, I'm gonna be proud of him because he's my son and he's working and he's doing his best and he's growing. And as you're a child of God, Sometimes you look at God and you're like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, like, how do I compare to the best of all worship leaders? How do I compare to the best of the world? And God just wants your best. He just wants your heart. He wants your love. What he doesn't want is your obligation. All right, going back to church. All right, reading the Bible this morning because someone told me if I don't read the Bible every single day, I'll fall into sexual immorality and I'll die a sinner and go to hell. So I'm gonna read the Bible every single day. Like God is not pleased by that, right? What God wants is, God would much rather have the person whose heart is for him. Maybe you forgot today, maybe you got distracted, but you're in love with him. And because of that love, you give him of what you have. So according to God, a dead church is a church that offers its obligation and not its faith. Think about the woman with two mites. 
imagine she goes into the temple and goes, all right, I got two pennies. I know, God, I mean, like, what's God going to do with two pennies? I'll just keep it to myself. I mean, I could use it. And Jesus said of that woman, that poor woman who gave the two mites, she gave more than anyone else because all the rich people gave out of their abundance. They didn't blink when they gave millions of dollars. But that woman gave all that she had in faith that God would be able to supply every one of her needs. Which, by the way, throws out the tithing argument where you're like, I don't have money. I know, neither did the woman with two mites. And I'm not guilt tripping anybody into giving money, but I'm saying there's a blessedness when you give and you trust God with the rest. You say, I don't know how this is gonna work, but I'm gonna take a step of faith. Like, when did we forget about that? When did we just start getting so absorbed with the media and whatever is happening on our social media that we forget that this is the perfect opportunity to exercise faith in a time of lack and suffering. Like when you start panicking and you're worried and you're anxious, also remember this is an opportunity for God to show his power and weakness if we would let him. So God's kingdom has way different metrics than the world. He's not looking for the rich to give all of their money. I mean, maybe, but he's also looking for you to give of what you do have. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faith, which means that he's not looking for the appearance before people. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Isn't that a terrifying thought that like you could appear to everybody else to have it all together. This is a terrifying thought for me. I could, on the outside to you, make it look like I got it all together. I'm married, I got kids, my family's awesome. I'm working at the church, you know, like I don't have to worry about my bills. Like I can, on the outside, make it look like everything's great. We got people here, teaching the Bible, I have a great time. But only I really know how well I'm doing. You know, there was a pastor who committed suicide last year. Well-known pastor, blogger, author. Only he really knew how well he was doing inside. And so we need to make sure that our inward person, the inward man is aligned with Jesus Christ, that he's restoring our soul and not just restoring our outsides and how we look and appear to everybody else. Imagine if as a church, we started practicing the ways of Jesus, even though no one here was here in the building, no one saw, but we were honoring God in the secret place. So maybe it's possible as a church, we could appear to be alive, but actually be dead. A.W. Tozer, famous pastor, famous pastor sounds like a contradiction, a well-known pastor once said this, very popular quote, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. It's a great evaluating question. If God's Spirit departed from this church today, what would continue to go on and what would stop? We may not have a lack of activity, but the question is, do we have a lack of his spirit. 
Maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, we're not that church that's like compromised in doctrine, immoral. We're doing all these crazy things. Um, there's a one seminary. I mean, you can Google this, kind of weird, but one seminary that they had a session where they apologized to plants. They like brought out all these plants in their church and they started practicing repentance to plants and how they treated the planet. Interesting. We're not that church. So you start looking at these other churches and say like, I think we're doing pretty good. I mean, not like we should destroy the earth, but like, I don't know if plants can hear you. So maybe you're not that church, but the question is, are you alive and is your faith active? Are we as a church doing something? Is there a spiritual vibrancy to the way that we approach the world? Remember when Jesus was speaking to his disciples who constantly had a problem falling asleep the last night before he was betrayed? And he's saying to them, could you not stay with, awake with me one hour? Everybody's just like, oh, I'll never desert you. I'll never leave. And they fall asleep. Everybody falls asleep. Did you know there was actually one disciple who didn't fall asleep? Who was that disciple? It was Judas. Judas was wide awake while all the disciples were asleep. Get this, because the world always has a way of being obsessed with committing evil. The world never sleeps. It's Christians that usually do. While we are dead, back, sitting back and relaxing, the world is scheming, plotting, and looking to take down believers. Jesus said in himself in Luke chapter 16, verse eight, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And listen, even people with great intentions, people right now in our world are so uh, committed to being active, to doing things in the, in the world, to change the world, to bring about the world that they think is gonna be the most successful and most equitable and, and things like that. Where are the Christians? And are we as passionate about our answer because we know we have the truth? Are we going out and doing things in the exact same way because we're passionate and because we're desperate? A lot of people with that success story about how they left everything, they left their families, they left their friends. They didn't do a single thing other than try to make money. There are people that do that. They obsess over money. There are people that obsess over their career. But are there people that obsess over Jesus? Because I would argue that when you obsess over Jesus, you actually are able to love everybody else in a healthy proportion. You don't make anybody an idol, because some people do. Some people are obsessed with people and then people fail them. And then it's like, they snap. Because you are my everything. How could you fail me? I, I've given everything I could to you. I loved you. How could you betray me? They're crushed and they're devastated because they made that person to be God. Only God can be God. And when you worship God as God, you're free to love other people with the power of God. You see, when Jesus changed your heart, when Jesus enters in and makes his home in your heart, suddenly you love everybody. It's kind of strange, actually. Like even your enemies, you start to love them because you think, if I was an enemy of God and I do, did all those things that led to Jesus himself being murdered on a cross and he forgave me, how could I hold other people accountable for their sins? Should I not just love in the same way that I was loved? This is what should happen, by the way. When Jesus enters your heart, you begin to love the unlovable. And that, my friends, is what I think this world truly needs right now, is a world 
that experiences the love of God, not the revenge of God, not the wrath of God, but the love of God. So not, not to say the wrath of God doesn't exist. Moving on. So let's evaluate. First of all, let's evaluate communal works. Let's evaluate our church as a church and then personally. Let's evaluate our works in light of what the word says. Let's ask ourselves the question, how are we advancing the kingdom of God as a community? Are we making a difference in this world? And when I say difference, I'm not, I'm not asking for you to give me a metric on how many souls were saved. I'm not asking for you to be like, oh, here's where we, we gave X amount of dollars and that res resulted in X number of souls being saved. I'm not asking about that. What I am asking is, are we doing anything as a community to impact souls for eternity? And that would include 7 a.m. prayer tomorrow. See, when you're doing prayer, like think about it this way. If God isn't real, prayer makes absolutely no sense and is a waste of your time. I could get a lot more sleep tomorrow if I just like, if I didn't believe in God, didn't do a single thing, just sleep. And I'm wasting time if I do and he doesn't exist. But if he does exist, we believe that we're speaking to the God of the universe who's in control of all things and asks for us to ask him for things so that his will could be done on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven. In heaven, God's will is always perfectly done the second he says it. On earth, there are people with free will and he's looking for those free will people to say, I surrender to God so his will can be done through me on this planet for this season at least. Also, let's ask ourselves the question, how does our understanding of the gospel inform our activities? Now, what does that mean? How does your understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, how does that inform the things that you do? Are you doing things because you have to, or are you doing things because you get to? Are you doing church prayer and you're coming on a Thursday, and you're doing all of this, those things because you're supposed to, and that's what good Christians do? Or have you understood grace? He doesn't require a single thing from you. He just asks that you love him back in return. Now this is important because if we don't understand the gospel properly, it causes all kinds of havoc. Like think about counseling, for instance. As a church, if we don't properly understand the, uh, understand the gospel, the way that we counsel will be horrendous. So if I understand the gospel as, eh, Jesus died on the cross, but he doesn't expect me to do anything for, uh, ever since he died on the cross. He's just like, whatever you do is fine. Then the way that people come to me with their problems, I'm like, ah, man, yeah, Jesus died for your sins. So go ahead, do whatever you want. I'm like, yeah, I, I feel really guilty about like the fact that I murdered someone last week. I'm like, man, the blood of Jesus. Yeah, totally fine. Go, go and be blessed. You know, because my understanding of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't require us to do anything. So the way that I counsel people is like, oh man, it's fine. However, I might also on the opposite end have legalism in my heart. And I'm constantly feeling like I haven't done enough. I need to do some kind of, um, I need to do some kind of penance to God, make up for my sin, atone for my sin, because God's still angry with me. And every day that I fail to abide by his commands, every day that I sin, he looks down upon me in shame. So that person comes up to me for counsel and I say, how could you? You knew better. I told you so. And some of you are saying like, isn't that what all pastors say? Because pretty much that's my last counseling session. Go find a different pastor, maybe. 
But to really understand the gospel means that we hold people accountable, but it's never to shame them. It's so that they would be able to fully experience the blessing in this life now. It's fellowship with God. It's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification means the moment you believed on Jesus, you, your sins were paid in full, 100%. There's not a single thing you have to do to earn your salvation. However, there is sanctification, meaning that we are trying to every day be more and more like Jesus to increase that fellowship so that when I'm praying, I'm not constantly like, oh man, oh yeah, I need to fix that and I need to fix that and I need to fix that. Like, wouldn't you just want to be able to pray and enjoy the fellowship without constantly thinking about yourself? That happens the more that you become like Jesus, the more you let go of sin and sinful habits. You see less destruction in your relationships and the world around you because you're not adding and perpetuating that sin that you, that you so struggle with. You can let that stuff go. And then truly every day is spent just like a child looking to his father saying like, what are we gonna do today? And that's the kind of relationship you can have if you personally understand the gospel. So personally now, how are we personally becoming more like Jesus? How are we becoming sanctified? And also, do we exemplify a holistic gospel? What I mean by that is, do we simply just talk about Jesus? Or do we show Jesus in our actions? James chapter two, verse 14. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Meaning, if you truly believe in God and you truly have faith in God, it will exemplify itself in your works. When Jesus came into this world, he didn't just preach about himself and say what he was going to do. He also fed the multitudes, even though the multitudes may not wind up believing in him. And we can also do good works because the second we do a good work, we remember where all good works come from. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from your heavenly father, from whom there is no shadow, uh, there is no shadow of turning, whatever it is, the verse is. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? So that means that the second that you do a good work to somebody else, you are like putting God's stamp on your activity. This is who God is. And the goodness of God, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The world looks at your good, good deeds and goes like, man, that's good. But yes. Our God is good. And so you direct that praise and you use that as evangelistic tool to be able to bring people to Jesus, the origin of all goodness. So when we do good, it actually shows good and shows our God who is good. Okay, let's go to verse three. It says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. So we know how to evaluate as a church, our works? Do we have life? Personally, our works. Do we have life? Are we doing things, not just saying things? But now, what's the action? Remember how you received the gospel, how you heard the gospel, and then hold fast and repent. Remember that story of grace that you were given. Now, all of us are on a mission, and God has included you 
in it. You know what's really interesting? Remember when you're little? I don't know if there's a good analogy for girls, so just bear with me. And I'm not trying to be like, like if you just, let me just say what I'm going to say. So, um, you know when you're little and you're like watching Star Wars or watching Batman or Superman or wherever you watch My Little Pony? You're just like, you're looking at that and you like include yourself in the story. Like you start acting out Batman. You start acting out like, at least that's what I did. You, I think girls do this too. I'm really not trying to be like ignorant, but I, I really don't know. So Tatum's not old enough yet. So you start acting out the characters that you see on the screen and you want to be a part of their story and it excites you, right? But eventually there comes a point in your life where you're like, that's not, that's not like mature of me to do that. Eventually I have to stop pretending to be other people. I need to be my own person. You like put that aside. Do you realize like the Bible is the only book you're supposed to do that with? You're supposed to look into, inside the Bible and go like, where do I fit in this story? And God himself has actually written you in. That's what we believe, as we're going to see later on in this chapter. There is a book of life, and you are written in it if you believe in Jesus. God has included you in the story of salvation. So as we read, we're looking at it and saying like, oh, wow, I am one of these characters. I belong in this book. And this book actually explains all of reality. And as we understand that, we're able to practice true repentance, turning from the ways of the world, the indoctrination of the world and whatever they're trying to inform us and, and, and say to us and say, no, God has spoken and he is good and he is right. And I'm going to follow him. Therefore, if you will not watch the rest of verse three, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So we're to be looking at this book, looking at Jesus and constantly be looking to this world and saying like, all right, what is God doing? What is he up to? You don't have to invent ministries. You just have to ask God, like, what are you doing? And how can I be involved? How can I join in on what you're already doing in this world? And if you're not watching, Jesus says, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So remember, Sardis was captured twice. And as they were besieged, it's almost like the same kind of analogy is that you wouldn't want to be caught off guard by Jesus because you were not involved in his planning whatsoever. You're going about your mission for your life and what you wanted to do, and you miss out on the entire reason why you're born in the first place. Like what we believe is not that you just choose your own path and choose your own destiny. Some people think that, like, that sounds like really empowering. The existentialist philosophers used to believe like this is freeing. Man is free. If God tells you what to do, that's condemning. And that's like confining you to a very specific type of person. But what we believe is actually it's empowering because if God doesn't exist, then there really is no purpose to your life. That's where nihilism comes from. It's a belief that there are no real values or morals to anything. You're just here. And I mean, you could choose something to occupy yourself with on this brief stint of life that you have, but afterwards there's nothing. Even if people, that's basically the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. Even if you contribute to something and you're remembered for like a thousand years, then what? Like even the most famous people will not be remembered in 2000 years. Like, isn't that depressing? But instead, the story of the Bible is that God created all of us and we all have intrinsic value and worth and we all have a purpose that's distinct. So that, that's kind of like, if I create something, I create something for a purpose. 
If I'm an artist and I'm painting, I do that for a purpose. Maybe I'm making it for myself, making it for somebody else, but I'm very specific in the way that I choose colors. I'm, I'm very specific in the way that I choose the medium because I'm creating something that I love. Same thing with tools. Like if you have uh, a pair of scissors and you're creating it for a purpose, you know exactly why that purpose was designed. Now, if you're in some foreign uh, village that's apart from modern society and you pick up a scissors, you might think it's a dagger. You might think it's a toothpick and you have no idea like what it's for. And the whole point is, unless you know your creator, you'll never really know why you're put on this planet. You'll never really know your true purpose. And you might stumble and try to figure out like, what is this really for? Why do I have these gifts? Why do I have these talents and abilities? But you never really ask the person who made you. And I'm using scissors as a basic example, but imagine you have an engine. How's anybody supposed to figure that out? And you know that you're the most complex being on the planet. Like you're more complex than any supercomputer that exists. And yet God created you and we're supposed to figure ourselves out by ourselves. Why not take the shortcut and ask God, the one who made you? So knowing where we are in this story will help us to be alert, to keep watch. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, Paul says, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, the day that Jesus comes back, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the picture here Paul gives you is basically like, imagine there's this altar and we're all sacrificing something to God, right? There's wood, there's hay, there's stubble, there's precious metals, there's gold, there's silver, and all of it's tested by the fire. And as that fire is lit, all the stuff that wasn't made for eternity just starts to like dissipate and gets burned, it's gone. And the stuff that's of true value is remaining. And Paul says, this is an analogy of the person who he himself is saved, but like he's barely got through the flames because all of his work was useless. Is that how you want to get to heaven? I'm like, no judgment in heaven, obviously, but like we all get to heaven and you're just like, hey, so what did you do when you're on earth? Ah, yeah, about that. I barely made it. Like, wouldn't you want to, be, to know that you weren't deceived by the enemy? That you maximized every single minute that you had? that you took that step. Like we all have regrets in our life of the things that we didn't do, the chances we didn't take, the, the, the steps of faith that we were too afraid about. But imagine that we did. And we're like, that was crazy. And we get up there and we start trading stories. Like, so what did you do? Oh man, I totally didn't think this was gonna work. But then I was like, all right, God, well, you're real. So let me do it. And then you, start, you, you have these precious metals, these stones of remembrance. You offer back up to God saying, this is what I did with my life. It really worked. I could trust you. I know you said it a billion times in your word, but it actually worked. And people come to faith. People are in heaven because you took steps of faith. In conclusion, let's read verse four through six. 
You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So white is the color given to Roman soldiers in that time when they were victorious. And so this is kind of the picture that you get. These people in this time would understand kind of like what Jesus was getting at by these metaphors. But there's a couple of things here that I don't want us to miss before we close. So don't tune out just because I said we're closing. Don't tune out. Everyone look up here. Know that unless God clothes you with victorious, triumphant garments, there'll never be anything that you have that will compare to that. There's no work that you could ever do to earn God's salvation, his acceptance, forgiveness of all sins. You, you owe and I owe a debt to God himself. So nothing we do will ever repay it. On a very minor example, when my kids mess things up and break things, they try to fix and like, I appreciate that, but there's nothing they can do. They're, they're not capable of fixing it. And how much more or how much less we are capable of fixing eternal problems that we have caused for ourselves and harm towards this world and our creator. So without God, how are we ever going to be clothed in that victorious white? Without his spirit, how will we ever find true life? But I love here that God is the one who clothes you. You don't clothe yourself. He doesn't just hand them to you and you're like, all right, here I go. But it's like, just imagine like when you're taking like that, um, that medal and they put it over the Olympian, that God is taking his victorious garments and putting it on you. It says, he will not blot out his name from the book, book of life. It's like, you are there. Nothing's gonna take that out. Your salvation is secure. And then I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This past Wednesday, I was talking about um, the book of, or actually it's, Wednesday before that, I was teaching for the main service on the book of Job. And there's a fascinating part where, where God is talking to Satan and brags about Job. Have you consider, considered my servant Job, how he's blameless, how he's righteous? Now imagine just overhearing that. Like we're not, Job is not able to hear that, right? But imagine that you and I get to hear Jesus brag about us to his heavenly father. Hey, did, have you considered my servant so-and-so, Susie, whatever? Have you considered, like, they, they really did it. They followed me. They believed in me. And because of that, the world is different because they have been alive. All of us, whatever stage you're, of life you're in, know what it's like to feel like somebody's proud of you. We all have people that we look up to, mentors, parents, Maybe when you were younger or even as you are right now, you have people in your life that they'll never admit it. They'll never say, hey, I'm proud of you. But God himself one day will look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to hear when we enter into the joy of our Lord? Let's pray.